If you have a Bible, please turn it on, open it up uh, to Daniel. I preached last time in the evening a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, from chapter 3 and thought we could continue with chapter 4 a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you saw a survey that was uh, produced in the last uh, two weeks and it uh, made the, the kind of scary statement that... Um, Within, it was a report within the Anglican Church um, that there were about 20% of Anglican churches that had no people under 24 in them. Uh, very, very sad. And, and it's not an uncommon theme. Uh, not so long ago, there was a survey uh, of church attendance uh, across denominations in different places, and uh, that particularly at Christmas. And they found as they uh, kind of did that little snapshot, that most people who went to church at Christmas, whether or not they were professed uh, believers or not, found that most people in churches were in the south, not in the north. More were in the rural places than in the urban places. And the BBC News headline ran, even Christmas can't fill the churches. Implication behind that is, is there any hope? What's the point? And uh, without casting the scene too negatively, we know, uh, maybe you're aware of how that is much of the narrative that goes on of in our nation, in our secularized culture that we, we hear, particularly within the media, that the church is often one of ridicule. Why do we need this God? Why do we need the church? Why at all? Well, of course, the world in the poor parts, the developing, the less developed. That's where the civil war and the broken and the famished and the desperate, they perhaps need this crutch of Christianity. Not here. Not for us. We grew out of that. And so uh, one speaker preacher was preaching to a, a group once of, of the great and the good, influential business people, leaders, etc., on God's love of how much he loved people, loves us. And used as, as the text for that, the parable of the prodigal son, the loving father. And, and after the talk, he asked uh, whether there was anyone who had any questions from within the gathering. And a businessman uh, stood up and expressed that after all of those words, he was quite unimpressed with the parable. And with what he had been told on that occasion. He did not need God like that son did. In the pig pen, desperate and needy. He'd risen to the top without God's help. Maybe, he said, the weak people need God, but not me. The preacher returns home wondering what type of message would have been appropriate for that businessman to hear. And began to reflect that many, many powerful, many self-confident, many people who seem in the world's eyes to have made it, take no notice of God and think they don't need religion, don't need faith. We talk to them about Jesus and receive a condescending rejection and we wonder, will they ever, ever respond? Maybe that was going through the minds, maybe not, we don't know, of those remnant who were whisked to Babylon plucked from Judah, taken to Babylon, and made slaves. 
We know of four of them, Daniel and his three friends. In chapter four of Daniel, uh, we, we come across the ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, powerful, risen to the top, strong, top dog, obeyed as if God Maybe people thought, oh, that King Nebuchadnezzar, he has all the power. Will he ever come to acknowledge God as Lord? Chapter 4 in, in uh, this, the, the book of Daniel, the letter, the story of Daniel in this perplexing little book, is, is, um, is actually a letter that it, it seems to have been written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's not from Daniel, as we'll see in a moment. And... Uh, it describes how he, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, the despotic ruler, this horrific man, came to acknowledge God as Lord and authors this letter. And he begins and he ends in this letter that is captured for us in verses 1 to 18 with the story, his testimony of his conversion. And maybe, just maybe, helps us in our particular bit of the world this particular time, give us an insight and understanding of maybe just how we can pray for and continue to witness those for whom they say, I don't need this crutch. I'm fine, I think. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1. To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. If I was tweeting, this might be a little bit like Trump. Like kind of slightly megalomaniac, megalomania to the nations and the peoples of every language who live in all the earth. I mean, he was the strongest ruler of the time. May you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. I Nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they couldn't interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar after the name of my God and, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. And it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves are beautiful. Its fruit abundant and on it food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches from every creature From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip it of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven 
Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms of earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can. Because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Jesus, as your servant Daniel responded, as, as you were at work in that age, and so now. The story of then sheds light in the now. Work amongst us. Amen. Amen. This little letter that is injected into to Daniel's story reminds us that nobody, nobody is beyond the reach of God's love. I mean, that's something we say a lot. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's love. But rather than being the down and out and the drug, uh, the drug um, inebriated and the, the alcoholic and the person whose life and is falling about and God's love reaches into those places. Here is Nebuchadnezzar who seemed an unlikely candidate for conversion. He's rich, he's powerful, he's wicked and arrogant. Maybe he's the last person that you'd think would be the sort of person we would either have opportunity for or would provide fertile ground to witness to. Yet, it's helpful to know in the story that no one should be considered beyond the reach of God's love. No one is too far. Jesus himself said it, John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever, whomever that is. So in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, it follows the, the ancient accepted style of how you write letters. The author first puts himself at the start and then to whom he's addressing, Kim, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations uh, and peoples of every language and place who live in the world. May you prosper greatly, a standard format for starting a letter. Uh, we might see it as, you know, if you kind of wrote an open letter on an email or on your Facebook that could be read by the world to the people to the world. <laughs> it may seem a little bit OTT, but remember he was the main man of the time. But the king, in doing so, would command such a hearing. It's worth saying again that scripture doesn't elevate him, Nebuchadnezzar, above anybody else. And in God's sight, the poor and the desperate, unknown Satan in an obscure village has as much access and privilege and right to come to God as, as those VIPs. But it's also true to say that when those who have status and influence and prestige and visibility, when they become Christians, that can affect a whole broad spectrum of people. We never should declare anybody unconvertible or too far gone. Paul himself reminds us to pray for our rulers, First Timothy. We should pray for their conversion too. Maybe this time and this week, especially with all that's going on, 
with the rich and powerful to pray for them, for their conversion. And should we have chance, bizarrely, to speak to them, you never know quite who's hanging around in the Cotswolds, I have to say, that we might have a word in season. We're reminded of Herod Agrippa's words to Paul. Do you think that in, in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's reply, short time or long. I pray, God, that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. It's one of the things that many are capturing afresh in our nation that seems to demoralize churches, emptying and all that. Pray for conversion. To pray for heart change. No one is too far. But also, we, we read that in this story, remarkably, and I'm, again, I'm thankful for the, what the Spirit has been doing in our nation over the last few decades, that, that part of what Nebuchadnezzar, how Nebuchadnezzar became a believer happened through signs and wonders in conversion. There was a time, uh, and, and I, I'm, a, I, I'm preaching and I believe in preaching and the, the, the rational explanation of the gospel and of teaching and explaining and of, of commending and arguing for and apologetics and, and yes to the, all those things. But also I'm so glad that, that we're open again to the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Of those of us who were at, at the Open Doors event a few weeks ago, uh, pretty much in every story of within the persecuted church, particularly amongst those of Muslim, Muslim predominant countries, was the, the, the supernatural appearances of Jesus happening, opening the door of possibility to witnesses to, to explain and lead them to Jesus and into fellowship within the body of Christ. The process of signs of wonders does matter. It's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. It's my pleasure, he says, verse 2, to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are the signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He declares, he speaks out that God's kingdom is much more vast than his own and that it will last forever. He's already begun to realize that his own kingdom is finite because he is finite. That there's something in that declaration of his eyes being lifted up that the arrogant king, this man at the top, is humbled to see that in God's sight his greatness Amounts to very little. In verse 2, he noticed just the miraculous signs that the Most High has God has performed for me. Not just I've heard about, but God himself with a miraculous sign and intervention for Nebuchadnezzar. We've heard earlier in the, in the Daniel story of, of an interpretation that Daniel had brought already. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, no one could interpret it and uh, interpret it. Interpret it. And, and when Daniel does that, Nebuchadnezzar falls prostrate before Daniel and made an enthusiastic statement about God's power, chapter 2. But it didn't take him across the line into believing, of following, of discipleship, of, of trusting the one true God. It started the process. But it didn't lead all the way, pointed, but there was the need of the person. 
It's often said, and we, we hear testimonies around the world of the poor and the illiterate and, uh, and those with very little to fall back on, where God heals. Guy Chevreau has written a book called Turnings, and it addresses why do we see more of the miraculous in the, the, the two-thirds world than in the Western world? And it's a really great question. Why is it that when, when I have the privilege of being in India, lots of people, uh, it seems as we pray, are healed? And in Britain, oh, it's hard, hard, hard. But that can cause us to step back and think, well, it's not for here, not for now. I think that's a, an untruth. I think that actually there is something powerful and the expectation, expectancy of, uh, of actually to pray for signs and wonders in the lives of the sophisticated and the educated and the smart and the sorted because it confounds, it breaks through, doesn't it? Paul reminds us as preachers to expect signs and wonders to accompany the preaching of his word. My friends and I, as we dip into the high street to do connect and we pray for people, are expecting breakthroughs. We urge us to pray for signs and wonders, particularly amongst not just the desperate and nowhere else left to turn, but of those whose lives seem sorted. It seems to be biblical good basis to stand on. The God captured the attention of the highly educated. Moses, remember, lived for 40 years in luxury and power and prestige and was confronted 40 years later with a, in a miraculous burning bush that didn't burn up and another two miracles. Wonderfully, he saw lots. In Paul's ministry, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus, Acts 13, Plubius, the chief official of Malta, were reached through miraculous signs. It was the miraculous that caused their eyes to be open and say, what is this? And here we see powerful, powerful Nebuchadnezzar reach through signs and wonders. He also suffered from fear like, like many do. It may be beside the facade of sorted, wealthy, negotiating, navigating our world without it seeming to bother us at all. Yet behind the facade, behind the wall, behind the locked doors... Many in our Western world of our society hide fear because of the brokenness still within. Pray that God would reveal himself in their lives. Ask and pray for the Lord to reveal his power to those for whom we are witnessing to and that they would take steps in the direction of Jesus as we simply remain faithful. There is a time and a place for praying for the miraculous, the signs and the wonders of asking God for breakthroughs. Yes? Yes, let's see more of that. Not for less. Yes, there's misuse. But let's not let them become disused. Not make signs and wonders the only thing. But biblically, part of the way that we introduce people to Jesus. Yes, Lord. No one is far too... Far from the Lord. Miraculous signs and wonders matter. But recognizing that it's hard, verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented, prosperous. I don't know when I read that, I think of him sitting back after a big Christmas dinner surrounded by wrapping paper. (laughs) It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar 
admits his self-reliance before he met God. I was sorted. I'm top of the tree. I don't need anything. Earlier, we remember, he, he, he didn't have need of God, and God met that need. But because he had so much, and maybe his particular problem was answered, he moved on, forgot, trusted again, security and wealth, power and prestige. But there comes those points in life where recognize there's, there's something more. It's hard for the rich. Jesus, in three of the Gospels, says it's hard for the rich to get to heaven, and the disciples are astonished by the statement. It's not, it's not money that's bad, but the love of money that's the root of evil. Why? Maybe because wealth insulates, inoculates, isolates us, bolsters our pride. Sometimes maybe the wealthy think, actually God needs us. I mean, we're the ones who give to the disaster appeal funds. We're the ones who are called upon when the church roof is damaged. We're the ones who make it all go round. Self-sufficient. Difficult to exercise childlike dependency in faith. Necessary for entering the kingdom of heaven when we've got it sorted. Where faith isn't needed to be exercised daily. Bread. Maybe so often we see it around us. We don't need God. It's only for weak people. But we begin to see, we begin to see in Nebuchadnezzar a pattern that some people hate to seek God's help. I mean, it's astonishing. People, I mean, they crisis prayer. Lord, help me. I'm about to crash. I really need you right now. And God loves those prayers. But some people, I think pride is one of those deeply seated things that causes even Christians to say, I won't turn to God yet. Some people hate to ask God for help. Remember, God has seen the power, Nebuchadnezzar has seen the power of God at work previously in the dream that was interpreted. But instead of, of saying, Daniel, will he come back? Come to me, Daniel, I've got a problem, I've got another dream. He, he calls all of the others first, doesn't he? He says, when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners came, I told them a dream and, and all of them, they couldn't interpret it. And verse eight, finally. It's actually, he doesn't even call upon Daniel. The implication is Daniel comes to him. He came into my presence, I told him the dream. Some people may laugh and look and mock us and say, oh, you Christians, what do you think you're doing? Why? Why do you believe this? But you know, with our consistent faith sometimes, when there's a, that point of actually help, where else do I turn? Where else can I go? It's often to those who remain faithful and true. Nebuchadnezzar calls upon Daniel, Belshazzar gives him his Babylonian name, chief of the magicians. I, I wonder what I'd felt, felt if I was like, you know, as a Baptist minister, got summoned to some New Age festival, chief of the weirdos, <laughs> heebie-jeebies. I know the spirit of the holy gods, I mean, I'd be a little offended. I mean, 
Daniel's not, if true to the monotheistic faith, there's one God. <laughs> Chief, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is kind of like Star Wars-y, New Age-y. No mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream, interpret it for me. It took a long time for him to ask Daniel. But he, he knows that there's something different about Daniel, chief of the magicians. Particularly terrifying dream. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, come Daniel. He may have forgotten, I doubt it. John Calvin seems to have found a good reason for the king's delay. And he said that actually probably the king is proud. In addressing Daniel, he appears that he has to humble himself. But he was only willing to do so when no one else could help. He was forced to. It's the desperate point of saying, there is nowhere else to go. Remember Naaman washing in the, in the river? It's an Old Testament story if you don't know it. Syrian commander goes to the prophet and the prophet, rather than doing some wonderful ceremony and healing this man of leprosy, just go and wash in the river seven times. Is that it? Come all this way and all this rigmarole for washing in a river seven times? Maybe even the answer was to say, will you humble yourself? Will you trust? His dream apparently caused him to realize that he would suffer humiliation and probably this humiliation would be the hands of Daniel's God. Matthew Henry said, many, many make God's word their last refuge and never have recourse to it till they are driven off from all other suckers. Paul, Romans 2.5, says the unbeliever's heart is one of stubbornness and unrepentant heart. How's your heart before God? First place of call? Or when we've tried elsewhere? Finally, Nebuchadnezzar swallows his pride and turns to God for help. And in chapters 4 to 10 to 18, Daniel speaks in the dream, interprets the dream and says, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar, you arrogant ruler, God is sovereign. It starts off, Nebuchadnezzar, I've got this, this vision, it's of a tree, it, it's, it goes up to the skies and right to the far horizons and everybody sees it. And it's, it's replete with good things and everyone comes and feasts and, and nests in the branches and, and the dream turns, the vision turns. Because in it, a messenger comes and and says it's going to change. And notice the, the way that the vision is described. The, 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 uh, the, the dream switches about from talking to a tree to a person, him. Daniel explains it. The tree is you, King Nebuchadnezzar. So the person in verse 15 is also the king. The messenger says, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. It's let him change his mind from that of a man. Let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Daniel's interpretation is of, of Nebuchadnezzar's temporary fall and madness, of insanity. And the purpose of this is given, verse 17, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowest, lowliest of people.
for a man of power and prestige, that's, that's a big thing to swallow. But you know, people need to know that God is most high. We need to remind them that God is most high. He is God, we are not. He is above everything in the universe and rules over all. It's not true that, that the, the God that we worship is just for the weak and the vulnerable. No need God. Self-made after all. We've come to the top without God, so why need him now? The message of God's love might lead them unimpressed. Remember the businessman, he said, <laughs> doesn't relate to me. A hard-hearted person may resist it. But maybe sometimes during difficulty, the hardest heart becomes vulnerable and open and soft to the Spirit's gracious wooing. And suddenly, the glory of God's love breaks through. His greatness is astonishing unending love. An evangelist, R.A. Torrey, uh, says that he was dealing with one of the most careless and vile women he had ever met. What a description. She moved in high society but had a secret life that was very immoral. Torrey says, she told me her story of her life in a most shameless and unblushing way. Half laughing as she said it, Torrey's response was simply to ask her, read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son, only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Before she'd read through the passage, she burst into tears, her heart broken by God's love for her. Something struck in that unresponsive, hard heart with truth. In Nebuchadnezzar, something of the powerful businessman is seen, unimpressed with the God's love. But the power of God got through to the powerful king because we also need to tell about God's power and authority, his sovereignty, his rule, his majesty. God's power. Daniel urges him to repent, to come back. He doesn't. Twelve months later, the terrible things that happened and were declared in the dream took place. And only then, even after the revelation, he knew what was to come. The pride was still there and it took his humbling, his brokenness before he finally got it. Only then, it's a lovely, lovely ending. Only then does Nebuchadnezzar turn. I believe he becomes a follower of the living God. At the end, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, not the one of many gods. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold his, his hat, back his hand or say to him, what have you done? My sanity was restored. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because he does what he does is right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Just before the vision came to pass, he's standing before the city of Babylon. He says, I've built all this. 
the royal residences with my might and my power and my majesty. Looking out with contentedness of, look at my life, it is sorted. Don't need help from anyone. Apparently far from God. But in his life, he came to realize that even God could penetrate his hard heart. In closing, I love this. C.S. Lewis said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see anything above you. Fix our thoughts and eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Look up beyond and to the more, to the greatness of our God, whose love abounds, who is sovereign. Let's pray together.